This is David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to this week's edition of David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network. I'm your host, David Clark. I hope you had a great week. I hope you're enjoying your Saturday. Thanks for tuning in. You can follow me during the week on Twitter at Sheriff Clark, C-L-A-R-K-E, and also at thepeoplesheriff.com. What do we have in store for the program today? We have a president who is morally bankrupt. We have a president whose value system has crashed. What do I mean by that? Well, where you and I see pain, grief, and suffering, President Obama sees political opportunity. And when you and I see misery, he sees a chance to use that as a bludgeon to go after political adversaries. Where you and I see a crisis, President Obama sees a situation to exploit. And I'm going to walk you through that in just a minute. Later in the program, we're going to talk about an interesting study that was uh, commissioned by some left-leaning groups, and it uncovered a black subcultural aspect to education failure. Thanks for joining me. During the week, you can follow me on Twitter, at Sheriff Clark, C-L-A-R-K-E. You can also follow me at thepeoplesheriff.com. Here's where I want to start. And you know, I I resisted the temptation last week. uh, We had been like two, three days out from the horrific shooting at the black church in Charleston, South Carolina, where a lone kook went inside and sprayed the place up with bullets, basically ambushed churchgoers in the middle of prayer. And the United States collectively, we were appalled, we were horrified, we were angered at what had transpired there. But I resisted the temptation to do a segment last week because I've learned something in my time in public life here. And, and, and one of the things I've learned is that I'm oftentimes going to be in environments of chaos, environments that are dynamic, a lot going on, a lot being said, a lot happening. And I'm asked to make statements, make comments. I'm asked for interviews regarding those situations. And I want to participate in those discussions, but at the same time, I want to do so in a rational state. What I've resisted and what I do resist is to do so in these really magnified situations, like a mass shooting, to do it so close to the event, and here's why. First of all, One of the reasons why I said, no, I'll let last week go by and I'll get in on it a week later out of respect for the deceased. I wanted to allow the people in South Carolina in in the city of Charleston and at that church, first of all, to bury their dead. My gosh, can we have respect at least for one brief moment in time and allow people to grieve and bury their dead before we pounce on this thing like we normally do. All right, and then there comes a point in time where then it's appropriate. 
This is just the way I feel. You know, other people can do what they want. They can talk right after. They can. That's fine. But here's what you get in the early hours and days following an event like that. It happened at Columbine. It happened at Sandy Hook. It happened at Fort Hood. It happened at Virginia Tech at the college campus shooting. It happened at the Colorado Theater. And it's happened at other high-profile tragic events. The problem is, in the early days and hours following those events, people are prone to excited utterances. In other words, they end up saying things that they might not really believe and may not ever even say when they're in a rational state. And oftentimes they have to go back and they have to either take it back or apologize or walk it back. And there's a way to avoid that. If you're in a public position, like myself, okay, you have to exercise the discipline to take a deep breath, take a step back, wait till your own emotion settles down, wait till your own anger, disgust, disbelief settles down so that you can talk rationally. And I learned this from Marty Linsky. He's a Harvard professor. I attended a program at Harvard University, uh, J.F. Kennedy, John F. Kennedy School of Government program for uh, leaders in state and local government. And in his class, and Marty Linsky wrote a book, by the way. It's a great book if you're into leadership. It's called Leadership on the Line. He wrote it with another uh, co-author. But anyway, he has a chapter in there, and he talks about this in his class. He says, oftentimes when you're in a position of leadership, you're going to be in the middle of a chaotic situation. And he likened it, the metaphor he used, he says it's like being on a dance floor, a crowded dance floor. There's just a lot going on around you, right? There's a lot of people, there's a lot of noise, excitement, people having a good time dancing. But when you're in the middle of that dance floor, You only get the perspective of what's right in front of you and what's immediately around you because it's too crowded, it's too chaotic to know what's going on and experience everything over the entire dance floor. So he uses this metaphor. When you're in those situations, get off the dance floor and go to the balcony. Why the balcony? Because you can look down and from the balcony you can see the entire dance floor. And you get the perspective of what you did not see when you were in the middle of that dance floor. It's a different perspective. It's more well-rounded. And that metaphor is helpful for when you have to make decisions and you have people coming at you, right? I got several high-profile TV media outlets that came to me the day after the Charleston, South Carolina horrific event and wanted me on to interview me. And I declined both. High-profile. I said to myself, it's too close to this event. We don't know the facts. We don't know what's really going on here. We're all in a state of emotion, grief, horror. And I thought to myself, now is not the time for me to get on TV in front of a camera and microphone and start making excited utterances because that's what we're prone to as human beings as part of the human condition. So I declined. One of the... TV programs came back and pressed me and said, please, they darn near begged 
just say a couple of things. And I just thought, it's not time. And what I meant by that were, were two things, and I explained this. First of all, there's a thing called respect. I wanted to allow the people of Charleston, the city of Charleston, the churchgoers, even the ones who weren't there, but members of that congregation, the surviving members of the nine people who were killed, God rest their souls, the state of South Carolina, to grieve. I thought, my gosh, let's give them a chance to bury their dead before at least me. I I don't care what anybody else does, ladies and gentlemen. I don't control that. I only control what David Clark does. And I don't want to be a part of that. I want people to see me differently. And if no, if for no other thing, they say, well, at least the guy's got the respect of the moment. And he gets the moment. No matter what I say about it afterwards, if they say that much about me, I walk away with respect for myself. So I decline. And in the hours and days, I saw what usually happens after these situations. And it's ugly. And it calls for leadership. But we didn't get it. At least not from people who we should have gotten it from. We're going to continue this in the next segment. You're listening to David Clark, the People's Sheriff on the Blaze Radio Network. This is David Clark, the People's Sheriff on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. Kim Kardashian is going to speak about the objectification of women in media. She is going to be promoting her new book, Selfies, which is just a collection of her selfies. She's going to talk about how she has been objectified. Maybe she could play some Kanye West music for him. Who uh, objectifies women. (laughs) Where does he do that? In the media, his music. (laughs) The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Blaze Radio Network On Demand. David Clark, the People's Sheriff. Welcome back to David Clark, the People's Sheriff on the Blaze Radio Network. We ended the last segment talking about the horrific church shooting, Charleston, South Carolina. And I want to move on in this segment to some of the things that happened. It wasn't even hours. It was within hours. And for sure, days of how this event became uh, political, as they they always do. There's no doubt about that. I I expect that. But I still expect uh, more and better from people in positions of leadership uh, to exercise that leadership in a responsible way. And I want to talk about the President of the United States, Barack Obama, who came out and did his obligatory Condolence to the family members, the church members, the city of Charleston, South Carolina. And once he got that out of the way, because that was nothing more than an exercise for him. And he swept that out of the way, pivoted, and went right into politics. 
And I was disgusted, not surprised by this guy. But I was disgusted once again that the President of the United States didn't have the discipline, didn't have the best interest of the nation in mind at this national, and it was national, this national tragedy. I mean, think about it. People in worship in a church. It used to be sacred ground. When I say used to be, it still is to me. But the cultural rot we're in the middle of, brought on, spawned by modern liberalism here in the United States, a cultural rot that has marginalized the church, marginalized God, has pressed for this more secular society. God has been pushed out of the public square. So the President of the United States does what he does best. And he went political. And he went after his political adversaries. And one of the things that's high on his list and his agenda is to obliterate the Second Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, the right to keep and bear arms. And he's on a mission. He's been on a mission for the last six years. He did it after Sandy Hook, where he exploited that situation of grief, the nation grieving school children slaughtered inside a school. And now he does it with churchgoers. And I thought, is nothing sacred to this guy? Nothing? So he dragged out, reached down to his bag of tricks and dragged out old reliable gun control. Here was an opportunity for him to accomplish his gun control agenda at a time when the nation needed comfort, They needed to hear a comforting word from the president, much like George W. Bush did in his address to the nation following the 9-11 attacks. A chance to bring the nation together, to help us grieve, to comfort us and help us with some healing words. And instead, he went political. And I thought, you SOB. You had a chance one time, just this one time, to show that you do have heart and that everything isn't political with you. But nope, you could not pass up that opportunity. And so he uses some flawed research. He said that America has to come to grips with the fact that uh, we're one of the most violent nations in the world. And that the gun is the problem. No, the gun is not the problem. And we are the most violent nation in the world per capita. If you look at the research, and the research is out there, I looked at it. I heard it before, but I looked it up again. Like I said, I took this opportunity, this space between the event and today, to get some facts together. 
And when he made that utterance, I knew right away it was wrong. So I went back and looked it up. And per capita, we are not the most violent nation in the world. And on top of that, the ones who are ahead of us have more restrictive gun rights than we do. So what the President of the United States did is he exploited us in our time of grief, when our emotions were running high, and he knows. He's he's a political animal. And you might say, well, of course he is. He's the President of the United States. We didn't need the political animal side of him at a time like this. We needed him to put that down just for one moment. And what he said in the days following the massacre at the church in Charleston, South Carolina, he could have said next week, meaning this week, right, about eight, nine, ten days have gone by, and he could have said the same thing and had the same impact, but he could have done it in a different moment in time, but not this guy. He knows in politics timing is everything. He did it after Sandy Hook. You strike when people are in an emotional state where he knows where people in that emotional state would say, yes, by golly, we got to do something about guns in this country. He knows that. And then once people settle down, because it happened after Sandy Hook, guess what? When they started doing the polling, an overwhelming majority of Americans were not in favor of gun control. Because their emotions had settled. And now they're thinking more rationally. So he knew, I have to strike now. I was disgusted. But not just with him. Because I heard other people. I heard the calls for, well, you know, the gun-free zone. The church was a gun-free zone. And if they'd allowed guns. uh, You know what? That's not fair either. Because first of all, it's private property, and I have respect for private property. It's one of the hallmarks of the United States of of America. We respect private property. If an owner of a building or, or property or business wants to prohibit firearms, I don't have a problem with that. What I have a problem with is when government takes public spaces, and in those public spaces tells me that I can't, defend myself or exercise my constitutional rights, government restricting my constitutional rights on public property is what I have a problem with. Because I have a choice. If I don't like that a business owner decides to put up a sign, no guns allowed, tavern, restaurants, I could say, you know what, I'm not going there. I don't feel safe to go into that gun-free zone. I get to make that choice. But in a public setting, a public building. I don't get to make that choice. If I have to go to the courthouse to get a copy of a birth certificate, I have to use the courthouse. If the courthouse says no guns, they are restricting my right to be able to defend myself or exercise my Second Amendment right just to keep and bear arms, whether it has to do with self-defense or not, and I can't do it. That's what I have a problem with. But there's another aspect of this. And I still have some more to say on this, so we're going to go into the next segment we're going to wrap this up you're listening to david clark the people sheriff on the blaze radio network 
You're listening to David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. It wasn't live and let live. It was we will find you, we will hound you, we will hunt you down. And give all the hugs and approval in the world to our gay brothers and sisters, so to speak, who feel that there's a great vindication of who they are today. But the fights that come tomorrow are all too apparent. And they're going to be nasty. And it's going to get a lot worse. Buck Sexton. Weekdays, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. David Clark. The People's Sheriff. You're listening to David Clark, the People's Sheriff on the Blaze Radio Network. And we ended the last segment. We're talking about this horrific situation down uh, in South Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, with the shooting at the church and um, how the thing has become a political football and everybody's chiming in. Irresponsible rhetoric, inflammatory rhetoric, knee-jerk reactions um, from many sources. And I'm I'm being objective about this. All right, I blasted the President of the United States and 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 in some aspects, the left and their gun control movement, how they seized on this uh, to exploit that or advance that, I should say. And also there's some people on my side or, or I'm on their side on the um, Second Amendment issue. And there's some excited utterances about uh, it's because it's a gun-free zone that got people killed. And if there would have been just one person on the premise with a gun, might have been able to stop some of the carnage. That's not fair, Okay. First of all, we don't know that even if that would have not been a gun-free zone, that any of those church members are gun owners or would have had felt the need to come to a church arm. So I, that's not reasonable. Okay, but here's what I think is reasonable, and here's what I've advised people who uh, have private property, because I respect that, and I respect uh, people who have private property their right to set the rules for that premise. But I have advised people to revisit this gun-free zone and at least, at the very least, hire armed security to get that done for you, to provide that level of protection in the likely event. And don't forget, in these mass, mass shootings, there's no doubt in my mind that these places are chosen because the individuals on those premises are sitting ducks. Sandy Hook with children. The movie theater was a gun-free zone. Nobody was armed. Fort Hood, all of the soldiers at Fort Hood had to keep their, their weapons locked up, leaving Nadal Hassan uh, with his weapon to be able to slaughter American soldiers. Virginia Tech. Those places are chosen because the perpetrator, the armed perpetrator, knows nobody there is going to have a weapon because these are law-abiding people and they abide the law. So I've advised people to revisit at least higher armed security. I've also recommended that for our schools, our public schools, armed security. So as we move forward, keep the people, uh, that church and uh people in South Carolina and Charleston in your prayers. It's going to take a long time uh, for them to recover from this horrific situation. Uh, They're going to need that from us. Next thing I want to talk about is the state of K-12 public education in the United States of America. 
It is in a deplorable state. And I'm talking about public K-12 education in our urban centers, okay? I'm not talking about our suburban schools that are doing well, for the most part. But keep in mind, the larger school districts uh, are in the urban centers, and they're predominantly minority, Latino, black, for the most part. Some of these school districts are huge, hundreds of thousands of kids, and they're failing miserably. And I think that, and this is the role of government, one of the roles, limited government. They run a school system. Educate the kids. Give these kids a chance to end generational poverty, to escape generational poverty, to acquire some sort of knowledge or skill that they can offer an employer in this knowledge-based economy to go on and thrive and reach their God-given potential. If we do that and just that, we can help these kids overcome a lot of the other baggage that they're saddled with living in these dysfunctional homes in this dysfunctional environment. So I came across this report, Negligent Parenting Hurts Black Students' Performance. Uh, this comes from Breitbart.com. I'm going to quickly read this. I think it's rather startling because I've often said that many of the pathologies and maladies that confront the black community, the black family, are self-inflicted. One of them is, I've said, ineffective parenting, failure to embrace education, school failure. Those are self-inflicted pathologies, but I want want you to um, listen to this report. A newly published report says that some parenting choices and attitudes can hurt the success of black students in school. The Economic Policy Institute is a left-leaning think tank funded in part by unions. After noting that their report does not describe all lower social class families, the authors look at social factors which depress student performance. In its first key finding, the report focuses on the different parenting styles found in black and white households and argues that these cultural differences help create an achievement gap not fixable by schools. The report states white students spend 36% more time than black adults reading to young children and three times more time talking with and listening to them. Other analysis finds that black mothers are about two-thirds as likely as white mothers to read to toddlers daily. Later, the report offers this striking factoid. By age six, white children have typically spent 1,300 more hours engaged in conversation with adults than black children. EPI's report endeavors to show that these differences are not simply the result of comparing rich against poor. After noting that the number of books in a home is a reliable indicator of home intellectual environment. Overall, white homes had 2.5 times as many books as black homes. But the most surprising finding is that the top quintile of black homes reported having fewer books, 69, than the bottom quintile of white homes, 71. So in other words, the top quintile of black homes have fewer books than the lower quintile of white homes. These differences in reading and talking with children begin to add up even before kids go to school. Toddlers of low-income mothers who read to them daily have better vocabulary and and comprehension in 24 months. Five-year-olds have poor language and math skills. If, when they were two years old, their parents were less educationally supportive 
engaging in less cognitive stimulation, being less sensitive to children's perspectives, and demonstrating less love, respect, and admiration toward their children when doing activities like puzzles. EPI notes that attitudes toward education tend to be based more on the parent's experience than the child's immediate environment. The report highlights a study which found that, quote, the quality of the neighborhood where a child's mother was raised has a bigger influence on the child's achievement than the quality of the neighborhood where the child was raised, end quote. There's a great deal more to the EPI report, including four more social factors that, are, uh, that depress student achievement. These include single parenthood, bingo, irregular work schedules, lack of access to preventive health care, and lead exposure. The last of these, which have some, uh, which have posited, uh, correlate strongly with overall levels of crime, seem to be declining sharply over the last decade. This isn't fascinating. I've heard of a study like this before. This has been done before in effective parenting. You know, it serves as the learning device in many homes in the black community. And again, like this report says, we're not talking about every black home. This report points that out. I'm mainly talking about the underclass, that subculture. You know what serves as the learning device? The television. They plop these kids from a very young age in front of a television set, and that TV serves as the pseudo-parent, the pseudo-teacher. The parent doesn't have spend as much time interacting with kids. On and on and on. If the parents don't care, the kids won't care. Education failure is the black community's most urgent social crisis. In the next segment, we're going to talk about public policy and how it compounds this already deplorable situation, making it worse and harder harder for uh, black people to uh, dig out from under. You're listening to David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network. David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. And all honest citizens, including me and you, of goodwill, weep when we hear things like, we're racists, and our denial that we are proves that we are, and that the University of California has censored the term melting pot. And then next thing I hear on the radio is the President of the United States is using the N-word. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 2 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. The Blaze Radio Network On Demand. David Clark, the People's Sheriff. In the last segment, I read to you from a report, Negligent Parenting Hurts Black Student Performance. And it talked about how, from early on, child development uh, in many black homes, not all, we're mainly talking about the underclass here, that black subculture. Parents are less likely to read to their children, interact with their children, uh, from a very young age, and how it really sets them back. I mean, we know uh, the impact that that can have, parents reading to kids early on, getting them interested in reading, buying them books, having books around the house, and it's not happening in too many black homes. So what happens is 
black kids enter their school years not in a state of readiness to learn. And I will give teachers that much that they're asked to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. These kids are developmentally behind. They don't have basic skills, and so teachers have to focus not on the three R's, but just on some uh, childhood development, uh, many of which are, you know, these teachers are not qualified or educated to do anyway. But let's talk about how this translates over into school policy now, because now these kids are uh, in their school years. First of all, we have this, this K-4 kindergarten. Now it's K-3. They're pushing K-3 kindergarten. And the thought, because government always has the answer, right? Well, if the parents aren't doing it, we'll start the kids off earlier in these K-3 and K-4 programs. And these don't do anything. Okay, it's a, it is a, an attempt to try to bridge that gap, but it doesn't work. To take these kids out of these homes where they really need to be at home. And I know in a functioning environment, and it's not functioning, but we don't then remove them from the home and put them in this government program, which is nothing more than glorified babysitting. And then we're providing feeding three times a day. We're providing after-school programs. These were traditionally and still are the responsibility of the parent If you're a parent, it's your responsibility to feed your kid. If you're a parent, it's your responsibility when school is over to go get your child and be a parent. But now Uncle Sam has become the parent. So who needs parents in the black community, right? We got Uncle Sam to do it. What does this do for leftist policy? Because see, here's where you got to make the connection. Remember what I, 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 I advise you. Always peel the layers back and figure out what the left is doing because the left is running most of these programs. These things are platforms of the not only the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, but also Democratic Party at the state levels. All right, Who dominates the K-12 public schools? Teachers Union, right? Teachers Union is a traditional Democrat voting bloc. So think what these programs do, though, for the kid. It gets, and their parents, it gets people hooked early on to government sustenance, reliance on government. With all of these programs, right? We're feeding the kids. We're providing after-school activities. Now it's weekends, and now it even goes through the summer. Instead of pushing this back toward this irresponsible parent and say, you're going to do this, and here's how we're going to make you do it. We're going to tie any government subsidy that you get, whether it be food stamps, whether it be rent assistance, we're going to tie this to parenting, effective parenting. We're going to make you do what we're now asking K3 and K4 people to do. And we'll give them help, but they're going to do it. So what these programs do, if you're starting K3 and K4, 
In a public school system, you need what? More teachers who do what? Pay uh, dues to support Democrat candidates. Connect the dots, ladies and gentlemen. This whole thing's an industry because these kids aren't learning. And we also know through, through what REACH search has shown us that starting a kid earlier on in K-4 and K-3, by the time this kid gets to the third grade, any gains that have been made start to level off. And by third grade, there is no advantage. And these school systems know this, but they don't care because it's part of building the nest. I've likened liberals and I've likened Democrats to carpenter ants. What is the number one objective of a carpenter ant? To help build the nest. Go to YouTube and and put in carpenter ants. Just watch one of the segments there. It's fascinating. And they're very hard to destroy. You might move them out of one area. If, you're, if, you, if your home or, or some other area is hit by carpenter ants and you bring in an exterminator, you might wipe out that nest. But the ones that run away, you know what they do? They go and they start the nest somewhere else. All they try to do is build the nest. That's what this whole thing is. This K-12 public education system in our urban centers is infrastructure for future Democrat voters. We brainwashed them early on. And and that's what we're going to get into next. How some of these policies, social promotion, these kids can't read and write at grade level. Why are we passing them on? Discipline no longer exists. But yet it just, you know, this thing just keeps churning and churning and churning. And then we wonder why the underclass in the United States is becoming a permanent underclass in the United States. And it is now expanding. This is why poverty remains generational. This is why there's chronic unemployment. Because many of these individuals don't possess the skills to offer an employer. The school failure, the dysfunctional existence, gang involvement, drug and alcohol abuse, criminal behavior. And that's why I say we just taught these kids how to read and write and add, subtract, multiply, and divide so that they don't come out of there illiterate. They would have a chance, but the left knows they might break free. Of course, they'll never admit this. But if you just look at, don't forget, this, ladies and gentlemen, this study was asked for by teachers' unions or unions in general. It's a left-leaning think tank that funded this. They didn't think they were going to find this, but they did, and you know what? They're not going to do anything about it either. This thing will just keep chugging along. And that's why I say you'd have to loathe the people. 
You'd have to loathe a group of people to keep them mired in this mess. Education has always been the traditional vehicle to upward mobility in the United States, and it always will be. We're not even going to have time to get into the the next part of this, but that's good because now I'm giving you a reason to come back next Saturday, and we're going to talk about this white privilege theory and how it's influencing uh, discipline rules in our K-12 public education centers, uh, schools in our urban centers. And that's going to be fascinating as well. And and we're going to talk about how it compounds the misery that already exists. We're out of time for today's David Clark, the People's Sheriff, the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you for your time. I know your time is valuable. You could have done something else, but you came here, and I really appreciate that. Tell your friends. Come back again. Spread the word. God bless you. And have a wonderful week. You're listening to David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network.